podcast called Walking the Dogs. This is a podcast produced and uh, um, presented by Paul Taylor, and you can find it on the Just Six Days website, justsixdays.com. Now, there's a, let me tell you a little bit about the reason for this uh, podcast. As some of you know, I've got another podcast called uh, The Mountain and the Word, but that's a, a professionally produced podcast, um, and uh, that's to do with creation and apologetics and issues related to that, and is produced through my ministry, um, the Mount St. Helens Creation Centre. But I've got other things that I want to say as, uh, as well, which um, are... Uh, now, how can we put this? They're outside the realm of what we do in a creation ministry. For example, uh, in the first couple of broadcasts, I want to talk a little bit about uh, eschatology. Now, I'm not really concerned about people's different eschatological positions as far as uh, when they're involved in creation ministry is concerned. It's a secondary issue. It's important, but it's not as important as the creation issue in a sense. And... Uh, in the creation ministry, when we expand as a ministry, it could be that I have a colleague at some stage who will hold a different eschatological view to me. That would not cause me a problem because the creation ministry uh, that I'm part of, as long as I'm in control of it, will not have uh, a position on eschatology. But that doesn't mean that I can't have a position on eschatology. It doesn't mean that the church can't. It's a clear um, it's an issue that people want to talk about. So I wanted a, a forum where I was able to uh, comment on these things that would not be part of uh, the creation minister that I'm part of. So that's the reason for this podcast. And I'll cover a number of issues at different times on this podcast. I'll give you a couple of examples, but it's not an exhaustive list because something else might come up that I consider. But I want to talk about things like eschatology. I want to talk about things like uh, uh, theology to do with Israel. Uh, the Jewish people, issues to do with uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, things to do with um, soteriology, the Calvinism, Arminianism, discussions, uh, a large range of things really, and I'll, I'll chat about those informally on this podcast. So let me tell you a little bit about the uh, name of the podcast and my uh, philosophy behind why I'm doing the podcast this particular way. Um, the podcast is called Walking the Dogs. Some of you know that I had a podcast called Walking the Dog a couple of years ago and uh, it was produced in this way, in a very informal way, uh, while I was out walking my dog Fraser. And well, I have two dogs now so um, I have to call it Walking the Dogs. I've still got Fraser. I can see him running around there, but also our very boisterous Labrador puppy, uh, Safi. She's fully grown now, but still puppyish. She's still only a few months old. Very, very puppyish, and she's just tearing around all over the place, loving the freedom out here as I'm by the riverside on this enormous river beach uh, by the North Fork of the Toodle River. And uh, my philosophy for doing the recording this way is the same as it was then. The sound quality will not be brilliant. I'm recording with a Bluetooth headset uh, using an app on my Android phone called RecForge Pro. 
Um, the pro version is not very expensive. It cost me $3.24. Uh, the light version, the free version, is fine. Would have done what I wanted, but it has these huge adverts all over the place, which I find very irritating. So as a one-off payment of $3.24, I've got rid of the adverts. That can't be bad. Actually, it also means I can record straight into MP3 and um, as well, taking up less room on my phone. Now, why do I want to record like this? Simply because this is a period of time that I have to myself. And uh, I want to uh, emphasise really the informal nature of what I'm doing with this. My main podcast, I want to sound professional. This one, I'm afraid you'll have to listen to the background noise. I want it this way. I'm happy with it this way. If it irritates you, don't listen to it. Uh, but do listen to the, the main podcast, The Mountain and the Word, which uh, is the creation podcast you can find at mshcreationcenter.org. Now I'm keeping this podcast on my personal website, just6days.com. So I've told you about the uh, name of the podcast, why I'm recording it in this informal way, and the sort of thing that I want to achieve with it. Um, so let's get down to some subject matter by the way you might find it fun to hear about something that happened to me as I started recording this after I'd done the introduction and uh, and before I did that last clip uh, telling you about the name of the podcast I started doing a clip about the name of the podcast and uh, there's been a lot of water here Uh, there's been a lot of rain and the river rose its level over a week ago flooded uh, a lot of the river beaches i've been walking on i couldn't get down here for several days uh, to this particular part of the riverside and the water's gone down again now while there was a particular uh, breakwater that the authorities have put up uh, there was a rather nice branch uh, that i could sit on by the riverside uh, and i thought that would be a good place to sit again and uh, so I walked over to that branch, uh, not realising that the uh, water level had actually made all the mud very soft. And uh, fortunately, I, although I wasn't concentrating, it was only one foot that went in. I stepped straight into a soft area of mud. Uh, it went right, right up my uh, Wellington boot. And fortunately, my other foot was uh, on dry land. And uh, I had to sort of pull myself out and uh, uh, to get down on all fours really and drag myself out. Um, and the dogs came straight round actually to, uh, <laughs> to help, which was rather nice. But uh, you have to be careful when you're walking by uh, on a river beach like this. Uh, so uh, <laughs> if I just play you that little clip that I was recording, when I stopped talking, that's what I was doing. I was uh, sinking with my left foot into the mud and <laughs> pulling myself up with my right foot. This this podcast is called Walking the Dogs because I now have two dogs. I have another dog. Well, as I said before, let's get into some content. So, I was listening to a talk by R.T. Kendall one time. 
And he said that somebody had said to him in his youth, don't start talking about eschatology until you're an old man. And, uh, <laughs> well, I guess I'm not at his age yet, but uh, uh, my children think I'm an old man. Um, but I, in some ways, I'm officially an old man now. I had my 55th birthday last August. And uh, in fact, that entitles me to uh, an old person's discount card in Lowe's. And it actually means that um, <laughs> I'm, I would be eligible to apply for sheltered housing in Longview, Washington, near where I live. Um, so uh, I suppose I'm officially an old man now. I'm old enough to go into sheltered housing. Uh, I shouldn't say that really in our podcast case. My children hear it and decide to put me there. And, uh, there we go. Anyway, at least I suppose it means I'm qualified to talk on the subject of eschatology. And I have been considering this subject for, uh, well, all my Christian life, really. There have been things that I've thought about. But over the years, I've realised that many of the things that I've said uh, by many Christian groups on eschatology are really governed by their beliefs in a system of eschatology that they have. And I became unhappy with the things that people were saying. You know, when I was saved, I was uh, at, at the background to everyone I was around at that time. Um, I was involved in, a few years after I was saved, really involved in uh, reformed circles, Calvinist circles, and in Britain most Calvinists would be our millennial. So that's the attitude that I took, that's the um, uh, position that I took. I read people who had an our millennial position on eschatology. There were one or two who had a post-millennial view but tended to dismiss that. Most of the people I was talking to seem to think that the our millennial position was the correct one. Then later on I came across those who held to a dispensational, pre-tribulation, pre-millennial view. And I became convinced of the pre-millennial view, went along with that theology, but became increasingly unhappy with A, the dispensationalism aspect, and B, the aspect of a pre-tribulation rapture. So about 10 years ago, I thought I would, in a sense, put this on one side to the extent that I wasn't going to talk about it publicly, but I wanted to study it. And so I began to study it um, probably a bit more than 10 years ago, perhaps about 12 years ago. And so I started to, to study. I started to read up on this issue and I realised that I was going to take some while, but I'm at the stage now that I'm pretty solid, pretty firm in what I think the scripture is teaching. Some of these things I want to share with you. I'm trying to put together, a, uh, well I've put together an outline for a book on the subject and I'll try to talk about it. But once again I do want to emphasise this is a secondary issue. Uh, if you came and applied to work with me at the Mount St. Helens Creation Centre. If you believe in Genesis, believe the, uh, the truth of that, 
you can work within that biblical framework and you disagree with me on the subject of eschatology don't worry about that if you're the right person for the job I'll still give you a job that will not enter into the issue um, so you need to be aware of that I do believe it's an important issue to get this right but it's a secondary issue it's not an issue of salvation those people who disagree with me on the subject are my brothers so I don't really want to hold to any particular system for example you've probably got the idea that I've hinted that I take a I, I believe in a literal millennium and I believe in a literal rapture these things are taught in scripture however I've come to the realization from my study of scripture that the timing of that rapture is that it occurs at the end of the tribulation so I suppose you would want to call me post-tribulation premillennialist if I'm going to stick to any uh, system label I'd probably adopt the label historic premillennialist now that clearly has connotations that it's implying that I believe that this is the view that people took in history I think I can justify that over a period of time but I also want you to know that I'm not going to stick to every idea um, that those people who hold a historic premillennialist view do actually there are a number of variations here anyway there are some who will take within that will take what's a sort of mild pre-wrath view and I'll explain these terms as we go along so uh, for now just leave it but I will uh, explain what I'll define these terms later um, there are others who seem to within their post-tribulation premillennialism take a, a, a replacement theology view of Israel and the Jewish people and I don't I take a Christian Zionist view and there are many reasons for doing so and you need to know that it is not only dispensationalists who take a Christian Zionist view because I believe that that is there in scripture um, so all these issues are important and I'll try and explain how they work together over a period of time with this podcast now I do want to uh, get into a little bit of content so um, I want to uh, just jump off really by looking at some of the news items well one news item in particular that's been very big lately really 2016 had two big news items in it one being the uh, election of the new president of the United States the other one being the vote in Britain on the European Union and uh, yeah I do think this has some significance now I'm not going to jump up and down so this means that uh, the tribulation is about to begin it could be but it could also be another thousand years off and you'll see that there's reasons why I think there are certain signs in the Bible which could actually occur pretty quickly but there are certain signs that we need to uh, look at uh, in order to determine when uh, we think Jesus is returning so um, nevertheless I think the whole subject of the uh, of Europe is important and significant I think maybe if I'd grown up in India or somewhere else I'd have perhaps had a different view on this but I do think that um, the history of Europe 
is significant as far as the history of the world is concerned. Biblically, it's uh, the major continent referred to after Asia, after the things that happened in the Holy Land. Paul's uh, missionary journeys were to various parts of Europe, the gospel spreading into Europe. Uh, so I think we need to look at what the Bible has to say on that particular spread of peoples. And I think in particular, what we're talking about with Europe, surprisingly, is to do with Babylon. And it's got to do with Babylon. I suppose all nations really have to look back to Babylon because that's where nations came from. Um, in the sense that that's where uh, um, there was an attempt to keep people in one place. Uh, and uh, God's will was not to be thwarted. So he sent confusion into people's languages so that they were scattered from the face of the earth. So all nations have migrated from Babylon after the Tower of Babel incident. Now, later on in the history of Babylon, we come to the time of Daniel, and I think really to put things in a biblical context, we need to look at the vision of Nebuchadnezzar, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel chapter 2, and what that's got to say about Europe. Now, there's a lot we could say. If I was going to give you a full exegesis of Daniel 2, there's a lot of things I would say. But the point is here that uh, Daniel gave Nebuchadnezzar his dream, told him his dream, so that, uh, and he made sure that he gave the glory to God, by the way. He did say that no, no man can actually tell you somebody else's dream and then interpret it. But he said there's a God in heaven who reveals secrets. So he gave the glory to God. God had revealed to him what the dream meant. And in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he saw this figure. And it shows five empires. First of all, there's the head of gold, which uh, Daniel himself said was the Babylonian Empire. Then he said that was going to be uh, succeeded by the silver chest, an empire less grand, if you, if you like, but that was going to take over from the Babylonian Empire. And that empire actually did take over in the time of Daniel, in the events recorded in the book of Daniel. That's the empire of the Persians. So we see that so these things are being uh, starting to be fulfilled in Bible times. The third empire, the belly and uh, thighs of bronze, uh, a lesser empire. And we think that this would have been the Greek empire that rose very quickly under Alexander the Great and conquered most of the known world at that time as far as the borders of India. And then we've got the legs of iron. So again, a less grand empire, but very, very powerful. And the legs of iron that would have taken over from the Greek Empire then would be the Roman Empire. But the Roman Empire was not destroyed. There's nothing in the vision that talks about it being destroyed. And in fact, the fifth empire is an empire of iron and clay. So it's a divided empire, divided kingdom. And uh, it's one that... Uh, uh, is uncertain but very powerful and of course it's ultimately destroyed by a rock not hewn by human hands and therefore uh, particularly in view of Daniel's later visions himself we think that this rock not hewn by human hands must be Jesus this is the Messiah so we expect the, um, the final empire to be toppled by Jesus but we think this is something in the future this is Jesus' second coming because this is what's um, uh, God gave to Daniel later in the book. So, uh, 
This fifth empire then would seem to be a revival of the Roman Empire, so it seems to imply that there is a sense in which the Roman Empire never went. And the history of Europe is the history of the Roman Empire. I think probably in, the, in this context, the most significant event in the later history of the Roman Empire would have to be the Battle of Milvian Bridge. Now, as a lot of people today do not know what was the Battle of Milvian Bridge was, uh, what happened there. But this is a battle that uh, Emperor Constantine was fighting against his um, uh, opponents. And the legend has it that before the battle, um, Constantine saw a vision. And this vision was, well, some say it was a cross, some say it was a Cairo symbol. Uh, one way or the other, it was certainly, uh, um, it, it infected Constantine. The next day he got his soldiers to fight under the sign of the cross because he heard the words um, in this sign, conquer. Um, uh, in hoc signus uh, vin uh, vinces, in this sign, conquer. Now, in my opinion, and the opinion of many other biblical Christians, the Battle of Milvian Bridge then, Constantine declaring Christianity not only to be legal, where Bevivus has been persecuted, but actually to be the, in a sense, the official state religion was probably one of the worst things that could have happened to biblical Christianity. And I don't say that lightly, because it's actually distorted what Christianity was about. Christianity which had been underground, where people had been um, uh, persecuted for preaching the gospel, suddenly had the reins of power. And this began to corrupt Christianity, the church, if you like. Now, of course, God has always had his remnants, so there were plenty of people around who were godly people. Um, nevertheless, uh, there's a problem here at the heart of the institution of Christianity. There shouldn't really have been an institution of Christianity anyway in that sense. So the Battle of Milvian Bridge, although it ended persecution of Christians, seems to me to have been a major issue and a problem as far as uh, the history of Christianity is concerned. Now, one of the titles that the Emperor had, Emperor Constantine took to himself, was Pontifex Maximus, the Supreme Pontiff. It's interesting, by the way, that it's perfectly possible to uh, translate that term, Pontifex Maximus, as uh, the great bridge builder. I think C.S. Lewis was right in his Narnia books to have Aslan described as the great bridge builder. And Aslan, of course, is the figure that uh, Lewis used allegorically as Jesus. Jesus is the great bridge builder. And so from that point of view, there is a sense in which Constantine and the Roman emperor's acquisition of the term Pontifex Maximus is blasphemous. And Constantine was not really a Christian convert. He still worships his own gods. Um, this really then is bringing things to the heart of Christianity, a problem at the head. Now, in the late fourth century, uh, the Pope uh, took on the title Pontifex Maximus, and that term has been used of uh, the Pope ever since. So the uh, leadership, if you like, of worldwide churchianity um, has taken the title Pontifex Maximus, and it's a blasphemous title. 
uh, that's what we have at the head of churchianity in Europe. Now the Western Roman Empire ended in the 5th century, in the 400s. Now I know it's staggered on in different forms for another thousand years in the East, but we're looking at the um, history of Europe, particularly Western Europe, in order to understand the European uh, situation. And uh, therefore it's significant that that Roman Empire came to an end. So all its leadership was really then governed, uh, taken on by the Vatican. But they, there was not an official uh, dissolution, if you like, of the uh, Roman Empire. So in the year 800, you've got a king of the Franks, a Germanic tribe occupying what's now France. And of course, that's where the country France gets its name from. This king was called Charles the Great, uh, a better sort of anglicized version of the Latin name for Charles the Great would be Charlemagne. Charlemagne in 800 was crowned emperor by the Pope. Emperor of what? Well, you see, the name emperor, although many countries these days have rulers called emperors, and that's historically happened, really the term emperor is implying being king over everybody. It's back to the concept of Pontifex Maximus, a ruler of everybody, a ruler of the whole of Christendom. Now, politically, this new Holy Roman Empire, as it was described, was not ruling the whole world, but they claimed the right to do so, and certainly claimed an overlordship over Europe. Now, they didn't always have that overlordship over Europe. Clearly, there are many occasions that they couldn't um, um, enforce that overlordship over Europe, but nevertheless, it was claimed. So you've got this unholy alliance between papal authority, Pontifex Maximus, and the political emperor, who is emperor of everything in Christendom, theoretically, and that's uh, the way that uh, society was going to work. You see, the Holy Roman Empire was ruled by emperors who were not usually, well, not always, descended father to son. Uh, quite often there were a lot of other um, rulers whose uh, ancestry did descend father to son, but then of those princes, one would be chosen who would be the emperor. So the empire does not have to pass father to son. It's simply the strong man, if you like, who's in charge of the empire. Now, the, you get to the early, well, late 18th century, early 19th century, and the empire is collapsing, political order is changing, obviously you've got the United States have um, uh, gained freedom from Britain, and other things are going on. You've got the French Revolution happening, uh, the new president of the French Republic, the man called Napoleon Bonaparte, and in 1802 he has himself crowned by the Pope as Emperor. So once again, in many senses, you might say, well, he's the emperor of France. But again, there's a concept in which you're not emperor of somewhere, you are simply emperor. And of course, the Holy Roman Empire then itself was dissolved. Uh, let's see if I've got those dates right. Napoleon crowned 1804, the empire, uh, Holy Roman Empire dissolved 1806. So Napoleon's exploits in Europe have to be seen in that context. He wants to take over Europe because he believes he's the emperor, he has the right to do so. Now, you see this again in other leaders then, 
this concept of being in charge in Europe. Uh, and of course, Europe was basically at that stage becoming in charge of the rest of the world in many ways. Um, I know that's simplistic. I know there's, uh, uh, but you know, certainly Europeans have this prejudice that felt they ought to be in charge and that sort of explains their actions in so many parts of the world. Uh, so you've got other leaders coming after Napoleon. Uh, perhaps specifically one of interest would be uh, the Kaisers in Germany setting up the German Empire. The word Kaiser is derived, of course, from Caesar. So you can see that the German emperors believed that they were the um, uh, uh, natural successors of the Holy Roman Empire. Kaiser Wilhelm um, took on another title, King of Jerusalem. Uh, he believed he had that title. It's something that other emperors had used because it refers back to the Crusader Kingdom in uh, Jerusalem. And so he took over that. So the, the German concept of empire then, one of the words that would have been used for that would have been Reich. So in many ways, he saw the Holy Roman Empire as the first Reich. Uh, his rule then is the second Reich. And it's in that context that Kaiser Wilhelm went to Jerusalem and went around the Middle East. And his archeologists were interested in discovering a lot of things around that area and took back to Berlin a number of important artifacts, which we'll talk about in the second podcast. So you've got Kaiser Wilhelm. Clearly then, Hitler's overlordship of Germany he did not consider, therefore, to be simply to do with Germany. Whether it was subconscious or uh, actually uh, conscious, his idea was to set up a third empire that he believed was going to last forever. Um, I don't know whether he knew what he was talking about when he said a thousand years, but it could be that uh, subconsciously there was an idea of subverting the biblical idea of a reign of a thousand years, uh, because so many uh, theologians from Augustine onwards had seen the rise of Christendom, the rule of Christianity, as being linked in some way to the millennial reign in um, uh, Revelation. Now, I believe that link is mistaken, and I believe that, that is, it's, it's obvious that the devil would want to uh, produce a mistaken view of the millennium. But nevertheless, that's the view that people had from Augustine onwards. Uh, in uh, his City of God book, he had uh, made this idea that uh, We've got to bring about the millennial reign of Jesus. So I'm sure Hitler, Hitler was certainly not a Christian, but there's in the subconsciously in the back of the mind here, uh, there's going to be an overlordship of Europe and hence the world. So uh, he's the Third Reich. And you can see he's a part of the succession of people who believe they have the right to be in charge because it is the empire. Okay, now with that background, we can see that the rule of the European Union, I'm going to go on to argue in our next podcast, has basically inherited these ideas. And I'm going to argue that the European Union is that empire of iron and clay, that it is a revived Roman Empire. The Roman Empire never disappeared fully, but is now revived. And we can understand what happens in the European Union and Britain's place in it and then out of it uh, in that context. Well, for now, thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm going to make sure it's um, available on podcast feeds 
uh, you can get the feed for that at the website just6days.com so subscribe to this uh, so that you know when the next podcast is coming out um, this has been walking the dogs I hope you've been able to hear what I'm saying properly I know there's background noise from the river and from elsewhere and from things that have disturbed me and perhaps some of the um, you know the clips that I've put together have not come out in the right order and uh, sometimes I got a bit disturbed with things but hopefully uh, it'll make a nice informal podcast that'll give you some idea of what I'm talking about and I want to go on next time to talk about the European Union and uh, its position, its place in history and why I think it's important to understand biblically. Thank you for listening. My name is Paul Taylor. God bless you.